All right, welcome everybody. We are back at Dorothy's place after a bit of an intermission. I am happy to be here with Pete Davis, who is not quite yet on paternity leave. Hello, Elias. So glad to um, uh, be here at Dorothy's place. Um, a good thing to think about before entering parenthood. Indeed, indeed. I agree with that. And it's a great pleasure to welcome a friend of mine, Mike Buddy, whom I've known for a while. And Mike, welcome to Dorothy's Place. I think you know who we named this for, right? Um, I hope so. Pleasure to see you both. <laughs> good, good. We, we figured it was kind of like her, you know, she had a kitchen table or something where Dorothy did the uh, evenings of re recollection or what do they call those evenings? Clarification of thought. It is a clarification of thought. That's what it was, clarification of thought. So yeah, it's kind of an informal kitchen table kind of conversation. I will go through the formality of explaining to those very, very few listeners who are not aware of who you are, that you are, and I hope this is updated, you are the chair and professor of Catholic studies and professor of political science at DePaul University, where you were also the senior research professor in the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology. All of that's true, except I'm no longer burdened by being a department chair. Well, that's I've good. Been able to, I've been able to pass that dubious distinction on to some other long-suffering person. Great pleasure, I'm sure. All right. Mike is the author of numerous books on ecclesiology, political economy, and culture, including The Borders of Baptism, Identities, Allegiances, and the Church, and the edited volume Witness of the Body, The Past, Present, and Future of Christian Martyrdom. martyrdom. Uh, that's a provocative title in itself. And finally, today we're talking about his new book, um, published by Cascade, I believe, Foolishness to Gentiles, Essays on Empire, Nationalism, and Discipleship. All right. Welcome, Mike. Thank you. Um, you know, on a slightly lighter note, because I know this is going to, the mood is going to darken a little bit here in a moment. <laughs> not, not due to us. I mean, just that's where we are. I want to start with a question about your past. First, I want you to describe a little bit of, of your own history. Give us, give us your thumbnail biography, and then I'll ask my question. Uh, sure. I uh, grew up in a blue-collar town in the American Mid Midwest, in a town called Joliet, Illinois, which was mostly known for prisons. Um, had lots of taverns and lots of churches. Um, it was an intensely segregated place racially and economically. When I first saw the movie, The Blues Brothers, I thought it might have been a documentary. I recognized a whole lot of places there. Um, and uh, I was raised a cradle Catholic who developed suspicions about the heritage in which I was raised. I, I, I was convinced they must have been hiding some good stuff from me because I was convinced that nothing as bad as what I was seeing could have lasted so long that they must have been there must have been parts of that tradition that hadn't been on display uh, where and when I was and over the years I've been able to discover some of those some of those voices and some of those traditions and some of those groups that have made um, the the whole the whole notion of Christianity something other than an embarrassment and Dorothy would Dorothy Day and her and her comrades would certainly would certainly sit at a high place at that table as I, as I discovered them decades ago. I'd, I'd love to, you know, that is a very resonant uh, 
uh, Catholic biography of, um, especially I think to many of our listeners, including myself, um, which is the idea that there's a divide between what you're seeing at mass every week um, and what you know must be there in the tradition, must be there in the body um, uh, of uh, experience that is this this the sprawling millennia-long church. Um, and I'd love to just hear more about what kept you staying around. So many people your age and so many people my age as well would drop out and not look further. But uh, in some ways, we're a ragtag group of people who didn't drop out. So I'd love to hear what your story of not dropping out was. Well, you know, the suspicions were formed early. I mean, I, I came of age during Vietnam and places like that. And the unholy alliance of money, God, and country was was thick where I grew up and in, in the circles of church and society that my family and my neighbors inhabited. Um, and I got the idea that something was amiss there, even as I lacked language to try to explain or explore that. And, you know, I was, I was lucky, I, you know, I found books um, and books brought me to people in places that I couldn't get to on my own. Um, and I can even point to one that sort of affirmed this, this basically stubborn sense that there had to be something worth knowing that I didn't know or people that I hadn't met. And that was a, a book written by Daniel Berrigan, the Jesuit priest, it was called No Bars to Manhood, pardon the gender title, but it was a series of reflections written during the Vietnam War that was very straightforward, talking about various of the Old Testament prophets and Paul and some of the, you know, contemporary exemplars of the faith. And he said it was all very different ways of, of exemplifying and explaining that if you take this Jesus stuff seriously, it might get you killed. And rather than that being a sign of pathology, that actually was a testament to having taken Jesus seriously on, on, on Jesus's own terms and trying, however imperfectly, to live out the implications of that. So really, I was saved by, you know, a small bookstore in the back of a card shop. I was you know, I, I was sustained by the local public library and boy, when a used bookstore opened in my hometown, it was like open season. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Did you meet uh, Dan Berrigan at any point? I did a couple of times. Um, I was fortunate in as much as uh, my university's director of campus ministry 30 years ago had been a friend of Dan's for some time. So we oh. got to have him come in residence a couple of times to speak and lead student retreats. I, I co-led one with Dan, which mostly meant that I got the coffee while Dan worked with the students. Um, before that, I had met him at a couple of events uh, on, my, on my own um, at some of the gathering places for folks in that circle at Kirk Ridge in Pennsylvania, which is a famous retreat house that a lot of anti-war Christians gravitated toward um, for a, a period of 30 or 40 years. Um, I ended up at a retreat that Dan led on the occasion of, it happened to coincide with his 65th birthday. And uh, so we got the bright idea that we'd surprise Dan with a birthday card and a cake. So somebody went and bought a cake and they gave me the job of trying to find a birthday card. In 
Marin County, California, the home of, you know, kind of uber bourgeois culture and high end social sensibilities. Uh-huh. Where am I going to find a birthday card for Dan Berrigan that makes any sense? But <laughs> just sheer luck, I stumbled onto one. It was a it was a black and white shot of prisoners in a prison yard, hmm. of all things. Wow. And the prisoners were holding balloons that in the photograph had been colorized. I thought this is providential. This is such a great card. So I took it back and everybody signed it. And I'm feeling very proud of myself that maybe this will maybe catch Dan speechless for a change. And he, he gets the card, opens the envelope, looks inside deadpan with, with the comic timing of Jack Benny. He says, Oh my, if these were all Jesuits, this would be the kingdom of God. And that's it. You know, just, <laughs> Anybody who knew anything was falling on the floor laughing. So, you know, I had a chance to work with him a little bit. Mm-hmm. I had, I had worked with Philip a little bit, um, oh. over the, over the, over the years. And like everybody, you didn't really enter into Philip's orbit. If you didn't criticize, you or yell at you for something from time to time. Um, so I, I've got a few of those letters in my, in my file somewhere where I didn't do something quite up to standards. So they've been, they've been a big they've been a big influence on me directly and indirectly over the years. Not that they should be held responsible for anything that I've put into print since then. (laughs) But let me jump back a ways to a book. I think it's one of your best books. Uh, I know it's a ways back. The two churches, Catholicism and capitalism in the world system. I didn't know what that expression meant until I read your book. World system. What is that? Right. So you made two predictions in 1992. You said the church, uh, in this triumphalist moment for capitalism, the church will move in a Latin anti-capitalist direction. That's your number one prediction. And number two, the U.S. church will have difficulty accepting this development and acting in ecclesial solidarity. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Double bullseye. Yeah, did you uh, did you uh, do any stock tips at that point as well too, and make some big millions or bet on Super Bowls or something? I am the worst. I'm the worst prognosticator in history. I mean, that's an example of a stop clock being right twice a day. (laughs) I take no credit for that. Uh, I'm sure I stole those projections from somebody smarter than me. Well, I mean. You saw it was you. You knew probably about liberation theology at that point. And you knew, you probably knew what neoliberalism was even at that point. Yeah. I mean, those were all several decades into the, yeah. into the, into the, the world by then. You didn't have to be, you didn't have to be a genius to see that. And I think just the, the demographic divisions and within the church of where Christianity was growing, where it was receding and, you know, the kind of the the different social locations of the church in different parts of the world would, would mean that a system that had been very good and prosperous for Christians in the rich countries was, was pernicious in many of its effects on their co-religionists in poor countries. And that those trends were only going to deepen and, you know, those conditions exacerbate over the years. Um, And, you know, in, in broad strokes, that's probably what's happened. We've certainly seen the rise of a more militant kind of capitalist Catholic alliance in places like the United States and parts of Europe 
uh, which have, you know, attempted to seize policy levers within church institutions, but also within uh, larger society, trying to trying to instrumentalize things like Catholic social teaching to move in a more libertarian or pro-market direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's probably, I think, some of what was apparent even, even then. And also before we get to the new book, if we're on the, if we're yeah. allowed Elias on the kick before uh, we get to the new book, yeah. I was very taken by this idea that you edited a book called The Church's Counterculture. Um, and I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on that um, and what drew you to edit that. Um, there, you know, we're having the 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 synod in uh, my local church, and I was thinking about, you know, and we got invited by the local priest, a very conservative priest, uh, to come and say our say in the listening session. And I was thinking about what I was going to say. And I was going to, I was thinking about saying, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. You're, you're wiser than my kind of, you know, random reactive thoughts to this invitation. Um, you know, the problem with the church is that it's not enough of a counterculture. Mm-hmm. And I bet that, you know, that conservative priest would say, oh, we are the counterculture because we're a counterculture to, you know, the drag queen story hour that they, you know, hate or something or to whatever's on Netflix, but they're not a counterculture. You know, my meaning when I say it should be more of a counterculture is they're not doing the works of mercy. They're not fighting individualism. They're not fighting corporatism. They're not fighting, you know, they're not standing as a bulwark of against capitalism for cooperativism. Right. And, um, and, I just love to hear your thoughts on what you meant at the time. And also how do we, when we don't have a similar read on what the culture is, it's almost as both sides of the rift in the church believe they are asking the church to be a counterculture. Mm-hmm. It's just their different views of what the culture is. Yeah. I think you're, you know, you've put your finger on a, a, a deep commonality that runs through Christianity both Protestant and Catholic in its American variation, which is that they're, they're, they're deeply, they're more deeply formed by their national political and economic culture than they are by the stories, songs, symbols, traditions of the, of the, of the Christian experience with the world over the centuries. They're more, they're more deeply American or more deeply embedded in the United States and its assumptions and its priorities than they are in what might be thought of as more foundational from a Christian point of view. Pope, Pope John Paul used to call the, call the Sermon on the Mount the Magna Carta of Christianity. And yet in practice, if you take that even with, even with a, a modest sense of seriousness, you can't help but be countercultural to the liberal or conservative expressions of mainstream culture. If you're actually going to be, you know, talking about loving one's enemy and turning the other cheek and, you know, lifting up the, lifting up the lowly and celebrating the, the peacemakers and those who are persecuted, there's, there's no agenda for that. There's no constituency that says, yeah, that's us. Let's, let's take that in. Um, you find yourself politically homeless and rather than seeing that as a as a matter of embarrassment or of deficit, I think that's really kind of constitutive to the notion that if taken seriously, 
Christianity both affirms what's good in all cultures, but simultaneously challenges all cultures at the same time. A friend of mine gave me a little bit of pushback after that book came out and said, really, you kind of missed the boat in this sense by saying the church is a counterculture almost concedes too much to the dominant culture, that the dominant culture is the true one, whereas for for people who take their baptism seriously, the church is really its truest culture and the, the hmm. first community to which one gives affirmation, emotional, intellectual, and otherwise. And it's these other pretenders and claimants that have to try to find their own secondary and derivative place, if any. So that'll get you thrown out of your parish listening session. And- yeah. <laughs> so we'll, I'll report back next episode. I'll report back next episode what they say. Yeah. But uh, I do you'll like be, that idea. You'll, you'll be sent on a mission trip somewhere that's uh-huh. not on a map. So, yeah. you know, report yeah. back. <laughs> let's, take, let's send you to northern Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. I also like that idea at the end. I like that critique of um, the concept of a counterculture is kind of like a liberal you know, it's kind of like a, an idea of, you know, oh, we're just another subculture among many instead of kind of the light that forms it all. That's wonderful. You know, our podcast occasionally dips into localism. And Pete and I are, in kind of a general way, fans of localism and sort of Wendell Berry-ish kinds of things. But I want to read a quote from the new book. Love of country, love of homeland, love of heritage, love of one's way of life, love of community love of being part of something greater than oneself, love of a shared purpose and mission, love of the historic importance of one's people, love of stories and symbols, landmarks and benchmarks, love of valor and victory. I know about the Christian tradition that sees citizenship as part of the natural loves, as Aquinas describes them, which gives shape and contour to human life. To love one's country is natural and good in this view. It is only its successes and derangements that are to be resisted. Grace builds upon nature. The gospel calls for the purification and not the elimination of natural loves. The embodied love of the particular is preferable to the abstract Gnostic love of a world community that does not exist in the real world. I understand all of this. I also think most of this is unhelpful to Christians. Explain, yeah, I'm trying to, well, I'm <laughs> trying to, trying to give a, a full and recognizable picture of positions that have longstanding pedigree in the Christian, in, in, in Christian history that are held by a lot of admirable people that I nonetheless take issue with. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not usually that, that generous with positions <laughs> I disagree with, but I do like to take issue with the the strongest or the best expression of things I think are in need of rethinking. Um, Part of it is, and I, you know, you, you, you invoked Wendell Berry. I think part of what's going on here are matters of scale. Yeah. Um, And I, I'm sure elsewhere in your conversations you've invoked um, because almost it's almost unavoidable at some time you start talking about nations and nationalism. Somebody invokes Benedict Anderson with the idea that nations are imagined communities. Mm-hmm. That is, they are too big and they are too dispersed to be a true embodied community in which you might actually have physical, real interactions with one another. But in fact, they, 
they draw upon the emotional resonance of those things in the service of something big and 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 ethereal in that respect hmm. nations are a fiction nations are are a construct they're not natural um they've been built by violence citizenship is a category that however much rhetoric of inclusion attends to it fundamentally is about exclusion as well it's as much about who is not as who is it it presupposes the right to treat some groups of people as less than human to whom no obligations or 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 service or love is due relative to others none of which has any resonance in the gospels none of which has any resonance in any kind of a robust notion of what of what church or 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 baptism implies or entails um but it's what we it's what we've been left with we've got this highly emotive familial language mm-hmm. that has been put in the service of um stuff that in another context we would clearly recognize as idolatrous when i teach when i teach about state formation historically to students um part of the challenge is to make them see just how artificial the assumptions on the structures are that we inhabit to make them strange um the idea that there is something that there is something essentially violated about me if somebody shoots a guy in Arizona who I've never met, who mm-hmm. I'm never going to meet, who I don't know the first thing about, but that somehow my fate is inextricably tied with this person in Arizona getting shot to the extent that I have to go pick up a weapon and do the same. When Aristotle and, and the Greek thinkers talked about a polis or about a community, scale matters came into play there there the the assumption was you know you really need to limit yourself to talking about a group no larger than those that you might at least in principle be able to interact with once in your life yeah and that was usually guesstimated at about twenty five thousand people mm-hmm. <laughs> we've blown through that so mm-hmm. long ago mm-hmm. and so we we have these constructs of of chance, of happenstance, of violence, of conquest, of, of empire, and we treat them as if they are self-evidently deserving of our love, affection, and devotion. And it's just not true. It shouldn't be true for us. No. Do you feel a tension sometimes in that kind of the church in some ways is an imagined community in that, you know, when I feel connected to what's happening to, you know, Catholicism in Germany or in Japan or in, um, and that some connection of the fact that, um, you know, they're, because they have a similar kind of symbol, um, symbol narrative, uh, 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 you know, uh, constellation, it makes me, uh, it it blurs other divides like the national divides, and in some ways isn't the hope not. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. You know, some ways the hope is not the John Lennon. You know, imagine there's no countries, but more that the, imagine there's so many interlocking 
I've often thought about it as in there's so many interlocking solidarities that no one line is strong enough to make us want to, you know, defend that line in a way that violates people. Um, you know, and that's a serious yep. one like religion, but I also think about, you know, a basketball player in, in America feels connected to a basketball player in Russia, you know, uh, because of their shared cosmology of basketball or whatever. Um, sure. And so isn't the goal, isn't the goal kind of a bunch of nations and a bunch of citizenships, not no nations and no citizenships. You know, people like the historian Charles Tilly talked about how in the Middle Ages, you know, the the number of discrete political authorities might have been as high as 1500, you know, er earldoms, dukedoms, fiefdoms, free cities and stuff. But within a couple hundred years, it all got boiled down to about 50. Mm -hmm. And that concentration didn't come with voluntary mergers and acquisitions. That's you woke up one morning and the guy next door has got troops in your garden and he's now taking a, a share of your crop, a share of your labor. He's taking your daughter. He's taking two of your sons. You know, um, my colleague, Bill Kavanaugh, used to talk about how, you know, one of the one of the underappreciated virtues of at least some parts of the medieval experience was you had all kinds of obligations, identities and allegiances. You might be a vassal to this one and you might be a liege to this one and you might be owed cooperation and protection from two or three different people. So, as you say, you know, it's it's not easy to sort of draw clear and, and easy divisive lines between this group and that group. Um, I think what makes the church at least aspirationally different than the kind of disembodied sort of multinational you know, sort of thing that you're, you're sketching there is the experience of things like Eucharist, is the fact that these radically localized practices that are essential in forming a people who are to be different than their surroundings, who are called to sort of an eschatological service, are called all over the world from all different contexts at all at the same times. So it's not like you've got, you know, the Pope Francis multinational corporation with a bunch of franchise offices. <laughs> it's not McDonald's. You know, it's more this, you know, at least when it's healthy, this notion that you're describing of a community of communities that are, are so numerous and that can allow for healthy diversity and creative engagements that don't feel the need to standardize and don't similarly don't feel the need to have to defend their distinctiveness at sword point um, as a different way to kind of think through what might what the, what the range of the possible can and should be. Let's see, I think we may have come to the moment where I want to talk about war fever, right? War fever. Yeah, uh, we're, we're, we're watching, um, it's like a rerun. I think we're about to watch a rerun in, in real life of Stalingrad in Kiev. And unless something happens. Um, and so you, you refer to a book that now I, I realize I've had to read. Chris Hedges wrote a book called War is a Force that Gives Us Meaning. So I'll, I'll just use that as an intro, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on where we are at this moment on uh, March the um, 16th uh, 
and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The the de the depressing thing about things like Ukraine is that how is that how utterly common they are, and hmm. you know we've we've you know, in you know in seeing in seeing Ukraine's European neighbors open its borders of generosity and 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 welcome, you know, within a matter of weeks, it tends to occlude the extent to which those same borders got closed emphatically with gunboats to people from Syria, from Yemen, from Iraq, from all these other places, to the point where even certain spokespersons in the in the halls of government and media over the last few weeks, you know, got, you know, embarrassed themselves by trying to explain this empathy by saying, well, these are people that look like us. Yeah. These are people who, whom we, whom we feel a, you know, a deep sense of kinship for without, you know, catching themselves <laughs> at the very edge of kind of the kind of brutal honesty that, you know, they, they that they're not speak its name. Perhaps. Um, so, you know, the, nobody knows what's going to, what, what the ultimate unfolding in Ukraine is going to be. It's already bad. It's going to get worse. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, for <laughs> one of the things that has drawn my attention in a, a really salutary way is the extent to which the, uh, patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church is being called on the carpet by Orthodox Christians all over the world. Huh. Patriarch Kirill has been in the pocket of, of President mm -hmm. Putin for decades, and Putin has needed Kirill. Yep. They, have been, they have been a team of a most unsavory nature because they've needed one another. Mm -hmm. um, and the extent to which patriarch has endorsed the kind of aggressive Russian nationalism that goes under this general heading of the Russian world kind of an ideology is being called out in some powerful ways wow. by co-religionists by co within the Orthodox tradition from all over the world that are saying this is another example of what had been condemned as a heresy in the 1870s which was called philatism. We would call it religious nationalism. Hmm. The irony is that it's alive and well in the West, whereas in the Eastern expression of Christianity, at least since the 1870s, it's been marked as a theological heresy. Oh, and they're saying, wow. you're guilty of this. Hmm. You need to stop. You've got hmm. Christians killing other Christians on the order of, you know, of a, of a regime that, you know, <laughs> We're a long way from Constantine, and yet you keep you keep trying to put it all in that kind of a box. Yeah, yeah. So if you if you've not seen it, go look for it. Uh, it was, I believe, it was initiated by scholars at Fordham University and at the Volos Academy for Theology in Greece, um, and it's 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 eloquent and it's something that. I, as a non-Orthodox Christian, could hardly endorse, and I don't see many of those kind of statements. Um, this is a document, Mike, you're describing? Yes, yes. Okay. In fact, I'll, if I can find it, I will send it to you. All right, and we'll try to drop that in the show notes. show notes, too. Yeah, great, great. This, this is a theme of yours that I found very striking when I first read it, the theme of ecclesial solidarity um, and the lack thereof. 
Yeah, I mean, it's not an original idea with me, and it's not even particularly, you know, radical in its in its basics. It just means mm-hmm. that you you take being being a member of the body of Christ seriously. It, it seems that, to me that Christians don't kill Christians. That's what it seems to me. Is that right? <laughs> that's a good place to start. If you, you know, if you share, you know, one baptism, one Lord, you know, um, then killing one another seems uh-huh. to be kind of a, kind of an outrage, even above and beyond the outrage of killing another human being with whom you don't share those promises and you don't share those aspirations. There's a, there's a theo, there's a theological outrage to it that is all too often just unarticulated because we're used to thinking in national categories. You know, I mean, we think of world war one as this giant war between states and rivalries and so on. It was Christian slaughtering Christians, but it's not narrated that way. That's right. The wars in Central America through the 1970s and 80s were Catholics killing Catholics, and yet never articulated in that way. It was always in a Cold War context of, of revolutionaries and regimes of, you know, the American bloc and so on. And the idea of ecclesial solidarity just says if that being a Christian ought to be the more determinative of one's many loyalties and identities. It means you you take that one first, and then you order all the other ones around it. Those of those of those of nation, those of those of ethnicity, those of you know, those of all the other things. As you know, Jesus expressed for his disciples in the Gospels that you know, even even the claims of family have mm-hmm. you know have to come up against the test of how they affect and how they and how they interact with the claims of discipleship. Not even family is sacrosanct and the trump card that, that, that supersedes everything else. And that's an extreme example of a pattern we see in much lighter ways all the time, which is, you know, in the book American Grace by Robert Putnam and Dave Campbell, they found in their studies of American religion that, um, and you know this is no surprise but it's uh they they had data and kind of social science to show it that politics was wagging the dog of religion in the last 60 years in american life um not in terms of you know not in these extreme examples of killing but um you know people who were republicans and um not very religious were more likely to become more religious to become closer to their fellow Republicans. Mm-hmm. People who were democratic and religious were more likely to become secular, to become closer to their fellow seculars, whatever. Um, and, right. uh, you know, and you hear in the racial justice conversations that have uh, picked up in the last few years, it's, you know, American Christians, American white Christians have to ask, you know, are you showing more loyalty to uh, your fellow? Are, is what's wagging the dog being white? Or is it is what's wagging uh, is what's wagging being Christian, and as you know, you can see with those interventions in um, in the Baptists uh, in the Southern Baptists, all the recent conversations among them, you know, that was a long conversation on, you know, why are you showing loyalty to your fellow uh, 
white non-Baptists in these racial justice fights than the Baptist church down the street that yeah. just happens to be a different race. Yeah. Um, and so as a starting yeah. point, you know, the goal is to show solidarity to everyone, but, you know, at least as a starting point, can you show solidarity to your co-religionists? Yeah, no, all you have to do is look at voting data. Do do a do a breakdown on voting behavior patterns on race and race and money and you know you you see where the where the tribes are you know 80 percent of white evangelicals voted for donald trump you know a majority of white catholics voted for donald trump that's not abortion driven that's not driven by family values whatever the hell those are um that's that's clearly a tribal a tribal sorting that 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 is broad and deep and against which christianity is just a little sprinkling of uh scented scented water is christianity going to be the curtains of your life or is it going to be the the foundation of your life you know that's how i like to put it sometimes it's like is it window dressing or is it um is yeah. it actually forming you it'll be interesting to see i mean the you know the the extent to which you know most expressions of christianity in the united states have given themselves such a bad name in the last 40 years mm -hmm. that uh you know the the you know the 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 utter indifference with mit with which it's being met by increasing numbers of people in of younger generations um i mean you made mention of putnam and campbell's book that came out a few years ago this that book came out more than 10, 10 years ago and one of their findings even then was that maybe the single most important factor pushing young people away from the religious traditions with which they had been grown was perceived and apparent and actual hostility of churches toward gay and lesbian people mm -hmm. that that no amount of theological you know ledger domain was going to make that look smell or feel anything you know anything more palatable than the worst of jim jim crow in the 19th century just you know if that's what you, if that's what you're about i don't need you mm -hmm. forget mm -hmm. all the other nice things you might be about mm -hmm. you know um, i'm just gonna say uh given given the uh, namesake in our conversation here i need to alert the listeners that if they pick up a copy of your book they will have an essay about Dorothy Day, whom you have nominated apparently as the patron saint of anarchism. So this was a delightful essay to me. T tell us a little bit about that as a quick diversion from what we were talking about. Dorothy Day, the anarchist. Well, that was actually part of a really wonderful uh, program that the research center of which I'm a part had with one of its partner institutions. Um, one of the great parts of my job is that I'm a research fellow in something called the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology at DePaul University in Chicago, which means that we get to interact with and support and cooperate with scholars, clergy, lay people from all over the world, especially and primarily with Christians in the majority world in the so-called global south. So we had a a program that we did with the Pontifical Catholic University of Rio de Janeiro a number of years ago. And we, and we just said, who, if you had to choose one figure from your culture and your context, 
that you think should be better known at the other at the other location than might mm-hmm. presently be let's talk about them mm-hmm. so a group of us went down to rio to talk about dorothy day and a group of them came up to chicago and we had a conference on dom helder camera archbishop oh, yeah. of recife in northeast brazil yeah which which then as now was one of the poorest parts of the country and mm-hmm. he was sufficiently ahead of his time that he was called the red bishop mm-hmm. death threats against him for years somebody came to his house to kill him one time and knocked on the door to see if he was home and dom helder said oh you're here to kill me come on in i'll make i'll make tea or coffee <laughs> or something sat him down and had a conversation with him, talked him out of it. <clears throat> so my little contribution, an essay on Dorothy Day, talked about the, uh, the significance of her anarchist commitments over time. Um, as you're probably aware, and your audience is probably aware, there's a lot of, there, there's much storytelling about Dorothy as, in the, in, as part of conversations about her proposed canonization and the process mm-hmm. by which the church is discerning whether she is a candidate for sainthood. Um, and as is true with all candidates, there's a different picture involved depending who tells the stories. So there's a, there's a conservative or a, a pro-family version of Dorothy that has popularized in some circles. There's a, there's a Dorothy who is a, a social reformer in other circles and so on. I wanted to make sure that in that one of the more indigestible parts of Dorothy's life wouldn't be wouldn't be lost in the sanitizing and in the and in the spin cycle. And that was her her principled and informed commitment to philosophical and theologically grounded anarchism. The idea that killing for order and building social order on domination was not what Christians were called for. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was kind of what that, what motivated that. And, you know, to, to see Dorothy's cause for canonization, you know, initiated by the Cardinal Archbishop of New York, who himself was the head of the military uh, vicariate in the United States, the military ordinariate rather, you know, he's the chief chaplain for the armed forces. He's a former military officer himself you know you knew there was going to be a bit of of sanitizing of Dorothy's life and experience um and so I wanted to keep some of what might otherwise have been neglected in in the conversation in my own small way there is kind of two projects when we're trying to have transformation in the church one is kind of the more abstract project of kind of convincing people that it's worthwhile, you know, a lot of research, a lot of writing, a lot of arguing, a lot of persuading, visioning. And then the other is for the people that are already on board, how do they put it into practice? Uh, There's this line I love from the philosopher Roberto Unger called, our ideals are nailed to the cross of our institutions, by which he meant, you know, if you have free floating ideals and you never bake them into a practice, or bake them into a thing that makes them reality in day-to-day, week-to-week, year-to-year life, um, they just float away, you know, they, they dissipate. Um, and I'd love to hear what advice you might have to us and to listeners and to yourself and to others um, about uh, how do we bake 
you know, how do we become a countercultural church? How do we have ecumenical solidarity or general solidarity? How do we stand against war? How do we uh, live more like uh, like Dorothy or or the um, Bishop of Recife? Uh, uh, and uh, what what have you seen that's promising and kind of practical, concrete uh, reality? Well, I think one of the one of the things that on balance has been has been healthy, and I know that the commitment to localism sits uneasily with this assertion, is the decentering of the territorial or the local parish in everyday church life, especially in Catholic circles. Um, the the nostalgia in American Catholic circles circles for robust parish life when you know you were in an urban area like Chicago, you weren't identified by what neighborhood you were from, by what parish you were from. And if your kid got in trouble, the pastor would go down and talk to the cop or talk to the alderman and all that kind of, you know, warm fuzziness gives a, a permanence and a longevity to the story of the parish defined as territory, a solidity it doesn't deserve. Parishes as the primary location where believers come together is no more than about 500 years old. Um, and so as a, and, you know, as a result of mobile, of mobility, of urbanization, of the fact that people can now choose, you know, which is a mixed blessing. Mm -hmm. Um, I think finding like-minded people is more important than ever. I think finding folks who can help, help one another articulate a language for what is it we aspire to? What is it that we think is missing in our experience of church? How much is that is our fault? How much is that, you know, deficiencies within the institutional gathering community as we experience it here? And who else is asking the same questions? Who else has the same struggles? And what you find is that there are a lot of people who are asking the same things and who are struggling together to find a language and a set of practices that more adequately convey and inspire the kind of things that you're talking about. Um, they, they take lots of different forms. They don't have to come at the expense of the local gathered body, the local parish, but can be seen as ways to supplement and nurture people who, who want more in addition to that. Um, I've been lucky to be part of a, an ecumenical gathering like that called the Ecclesia Project which started more than 20 years ago as a group of pastors, scholars, and lay people who didn't, who, when they got together, basically, you know, found one another out of a shared intuition rather than out of a, a clear set of ideas up front. The, the intuition was there had to be something more than what we were getting in our, in our very local context. Mm -hmm. And those were mainline Protestants, those were some Anabaptist folks, those were some Catholic, I mean, people from a variety of predominantly white Christian experiences in the United States and some in Canada. And what they found was that they had friends they hadn't met yet, that people who had been struggling with this and had maybe had found some practices, found some ways of encouraging one another and naming the issues and even naming their desires in ways they couldn't do by themselves. And so that kind of thing endures as a way to help people do things together 
both to do better what they're already doing in their local context, but also as ways to find friends committed to the same broad set of concerns to do new things that wouldn't otherwise be possible. And I think that that's in practice, you see that with lots of different names. You see it, you know, you know, people who are trying to take, you know, permaculture into church settings. You see it with people trying to, you know, expand notions of what constitutes, you know, musicality and liturgy and, you know, what it means to try to, you know, reclaim shatter zones in, in, you know, environmentally degraded areas without becoming gentrifiers. You know, there's lots of different ways that that takes shape, but it's, it requires, you know, it requires for the good of the local community going outside of it. And I think it's easier to do that now than it used to be. And it's probably more important to do now than it's been in some time. All right. Uh, well, Mike, a pleasure. Even in these dark times, you're a bright light. Thank you for joining us. No, pleasure. Thanks for, thanks for chatting with me. I hope we can do it. We can do it again sometime.